With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Now, I'm going to preemptively apologize, or I guess just give you all a warning. If you all hear any kind of odd sounds, please note that I am propping up the boom arm here with my hand, and uh, that is because it keeps on moving around and occasionally smacks into things. So I have to hold it. So if you hear anything, I do apologize. But you know what you also probably hear? Crystal clear, smooth audio. I'm so glad that we got this thing resolved. To actually, you know, have something that sounds good. You know what I mean, Gabby? Absolutely. Okay, so what we what did we talk about last time? Uh, what, we, what am I saying? What did you we talk about last about time? You talked about the Crusades last time without me. <laughs> yes, yes, and it, it. I don't know why it took me a second to realize that because we did six. No, wait, seven episodes. Technically, six episodes of just the Crusades, but I'm going to count Saladin as being part of the Crusades. So that definitely was one. I don't know how many other long running big series I'm going to do. But I do want to do more things like that in the future. Just maybe not, uh, you know, six episodes. Or if I do, it's not going to be like back to back to back to back to back. I want to I want to mix things up, give more variation. And I want to get suggestions from all of you all for what it is that you want to do. So whatever it is that you have, please let us know. Like tag us and stuff on like Instagram, Discord, etc. Just like whatever ideas you all have, please give us a heads up because I'm always looking for more. And don't forget to submit any fun historical stories, historical family stories to our website. We'll have that link in the description for you guys. Exactly. Thank you for remembering that. It's it's our thing. And yet, for whatever reason, every time I think like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this and do all the talking. And I cannot remember for the life of me some of the things that I need to do. ADHD. Okay, yes. But also you're pretty, so you distract me. ADHD. Okay, okay. Speaking of things that are romantic. Okay, I'm sorry. You don't need to lean in. This romantic. Is, listen, 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 listen. It's more like romanticized, I, I'm going to say. Okay, so there are many groups in history that have been like romanticized and that kind of thing. You know, they received a lot of attention, movies, games, TV shows, etc. But one of the more common ones that we have nowadays is pirates. Why do you think that is, Gabby? They're cool. Well, that's that's it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that with some of the stuff is cool, but we're going to go a bit deeper into this. See, because thanks to, I mean, you got things like the legacy that was created by Pirates of the Caribbean. You got other forms of media. There exists this kind of image in the public eye, like, you know, what you're thinking of that what a pirate is. The unfortunate thing, though, is um, that image, like that, that one that you have there. That's um that that's not exactly right. I mean, hell, when you think of piracy, you're probably thinking like 
the golden age of piracy. You know, the one from 1650 to 1730, the Caribbean. It's a hot spot for swashbuckling buccaneers on the search for treasure, right? No. When I think of pirates, I think of Pirates of the Caribbean. Kind of. But I haven't actually seen it. So just like one scene where the girl falls off in like the castle into the water or something because she's in a really tight dress. But that's all I know about pirates. Listen, okay, so I, I like I want to say that that's better, but I'll be honest that that sounds significantly worse because it, I was even trying to give like a um, I, I was trying to give some like leeway there, like oh you're probably thinking of the golden age. Nope, just the movies. To be fair, that's actually probably a lot of people, and that's just the what it is that I'm thinking of. Oh well, it is what it is. But on that note, I wanted to go on an immediate tangent and kind of explain, you know, that term, swashbuckling, for it here. Do you, do, like, you've, you've heard that term. Is it when they mop? I, how do I even begin to process that? <laughs> Wait a oh, minute. Oh, like, they mop the deck, like swashbuckling? No. Oh. <laughs> no, that's not it at all. Okay, okay, okay. Let me explain this. So, swashbuckling, what exactly is that? Today, you have the term, you know, swashbuckler, which has heroic overtones, but that's not always been the case. Because the original sense of swashbuckler was a swaggering bravo or like a ruffian, a noisy braggadocio. Like, they they trace that word all the way back to 1560, where braggadocio as the name like brag kind of would be is a empty boasting or arrogant pretension. So the origin of swashbuckler comes from the verb swash, which is to act in a blustering and uh, bullying manner with the noun buckler, which is a small shield that is held on like you. It's a tiny little shield that would be on the, an extended reach of your arm. Like it, it's held out at arm's length. So it literally means one who makes noise by striking his or his opponent's shield with his sword. Literally, it's just a person who's making a bunch of noise. That is absolutely not what I thought that was. Yep. So if you're wondering how the term came to be what it is, you know, today, or at least how it's applied, then you can thank a bunch of the cheesy romance novels in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. They invented a subgenre of the romance genre that was the swashbuckler. Because, you see, you had these swashbucklers as a genre of European adventure literature, which focused on this really heroic protagonist that was a stock character. They're typically skilled in things like um, like swordplay, acrobatics. They're, like, really clever. They got a lot of guile. But at the same time, they possess very chivalrous ideals. So a swashbuckler protagonist is a heroic daring and idealistic individual he rescues damsels in distress he protects the downtrodden and he also uses duels to defend his honor or the honor of like a lady or to avenge someone i guess like swashbucklers would often engage in daring and romantic adventures with like just like super flamboyant acts like that image of like cutting the rope and swinging across the ship to safety of another like that that's that's a swashbuckling move. Swashbucklers were heroes and gentlemen. They would dress elegantly. They would dress flamboyantly. They would have like all these coats, these waistcoats that were like super colorful. 
tight breeches, large feathered hats, high leather boots, and of course they would use like little like rapiers and other weapons associated with the aristocracy because they were noble, so to speak. Like it's literally just a whole genre of things for romance. Okay, okay, so, but anyway, back to pirates. Like, I realized when I was writing this that this was going to be such a huge topic that I would probably need to break it down into sections. I mean, realistically speaking, there is no way for me to cover 3,000 years of history in an hour-long podcast. Like, yeah, but that's simply not going to happen. No matter how much it is that I'm able to talk, I can't talk that fast. (laughs) Which, yes, okay, side note, piracy is like 3,000 years old. But also, you can talk that fast. I've heard you do it. Do you know how much you talk my ear off about the Crusades or just potatoes? Yeah, but I had to split that, like, the Crusades at least into, like, seven sessions. Well, yeah, but I'm not talking about the podcast. I'm talking about in general, like, when we first met, how much you talk. Like, you talk so much. I, 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 yes. How do you think we got here where we are today? (laughs) Valid. Okay, so as I was saying, piracy is old. We're talking thousands of years old. And, like, our oldest record indicates that we, we probably goes back further. But the oldest record that we have dates back to around 1340 B.C. with Pharaoh Akhenaten, which describes the targeting of ships in North Africa by pirates. Like, the funny part about that is that the whole thing is that he's actually accusing another king of sponsoring these pirates in order to weaken Egypt, which, I mean, yeah, if, if case you're confused, that was a pretty common thing to do. Like, that was fairly normal. So, I, I have an excerpt here. The earliest evidence of piracy in the Mediterranean comes from the Amarna letters, which were these 14th century correspondence between the rulers of varying eastern kingdoms and Egypt. I say eastern, like near east, so we're talking around the Mediterranean in the Middle East, what we associate today. And so in one of these exchanges, the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, he accuses the king of Alatia, which is in modern-day Cyprus, of giving aid and support to pirates from the region of Lucca in Asia Minor who were raiding his coastal cities. So the Alatian king denied that he had any kind of involvement and further pointed out that the Lucca were actually raiding his own coastal lands and ports as well. The Luca, in this case, they they controlled this undefined region of Asia Minor, which was just simply referenced as the Luca lands, and may have primarily been like the the stuff that we know comes from Hittite and Egyptian accounts. They may have been a couple different tribal groups, like the Luwians or others, which were one of the earliest tribes that were inhabiting Asia Minor. They most likely are the same as the later Lycians. And they also are associated with piracy. The, the really confusing thing is that all that is definitively that is known about them is that they practice piracy on a regular basis. They were sometimes allies, sometimes the enemies of the Hittites, and sometimes both. It, it's, it's a bit odd. They would serve as mercenaries on apparently the same conflict in different sides, which many mercenaries did actually now throughout history. But they're named as one of the nationalities who comprised of a coalition of different groups known as the Sea Peoples. You remember that term, right, Gabby? Yeah, because we don't know where the Sea Peoples are, right? Or what they were, or who they were, or where they went? Yeah, no, that that literally is precisely it. Like, I can... This is where we're going to have a bit of a problem, because 
I'm going to try to explain what I can, but we're going to get kind of weird and vague because we don't know who the sea peoples are. Like exactly as you said, we know they were a group of people or a group of different peoples that were collectively known as the sea people, but we don't really know much detail. Like that is one of the most common questions that I get on TikTok. Like who were the sea people? Can you explain the sea people, etc.? So I, I'm going to try here. So for those of you who don't know, oh, do you have something? I was just going to say they were raiders from the sea. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't that sum it up? That sums it up. I, you're welcome. I saved you 15 minutes of your time. You, you, okay, you, you know what? I, I really want to be mad, but you're not wrong because that's literally all we basically know. I hate to admit that, but that's that's literally... You're welcome, folks. More history with Gabby at five. And it's literally going to be two seconds long. So, yeah. So to to explain it in more complex terms, I guess I would say the Sea Peoples were confederacy of naval raiders who, for about a century, harried the coastal towns and cities of the Mediterranean between 1276 and 1178 BC, concentrating their efforts especially on Egypt, which was the wealthiest nation of the time. So, I mean, it just kind of makes sense. They were considered as one of the major contributing causes to the Bronze Age collapse, and they were once regarded as the primary cause, though now people think of it as being a multitude of different factors, not just one. Their exact nationality, though, like of these sea people, is a complete mystery, as the existing records of their activities are mainly Egyptian, though there are some Hittite, and they really only describe them in terms of battle. Like, there's no record of their people of their culture, of their language, of nothing. Just, there's an excerpt that is on a steel at Tanis, which reads, They came from the sea in their warships, and none could stand against him. That, like, that's it. That description is very typical of Egyptian references to these mysterious invaders. Like, we don't really know. The names of the tribes which comprise the sea people have been given in Egyptian records as the Sheridan, the Sheklesh, the Luka, Tersha, and Aquasha. But they could have had different names elsewhere. Like, outside Egypt, they also assaulted the regions of the Hittite Empire, the Levant, other areas around the Mediterranean coast. Like, their origin identity has been suggested that they could be, like, ancient Etruscan or Trojans, or even Philistines or Mycenaeans, even Minoans. But we don't know... Because so far, no account that has been discovered thus sh- like thus far sheds any kind of light into the question. Like, we just don't know. There could be any number of claims. And like, everything that you see, if someone definitively says, oh, yeah, we know, we know who the Sea Peoples are. Oh, we know this. They're lying. They are. We, we just, we don't know. There are no ancient inscriptions that name any coalition of Sea Peoples, quote unquote. Even that term That is a modern-day designation that was coined by this French Egyptologist, Gaston Mesfero, in 1881. See, Mesfero came up with the idea because the ancient reports claim that these tribes came from the sea, from the islands. But they never say which sea or which islands or anything, so the sea people's origin just remains unknown. And that's really it. 
Like, we have tales of their battles with Egyptian rulers, but after their defeat by Ramses III, who was the grandson of Ramses II, like that really great, insane Egyptian pharaoh, the sea peoples just vanish from history. The survivors of the battle, perhaps being assimilated into Egyptian culture or dying out, we don't know. There's no records that indicate where they come from. There's no accounts of them after 1178. But for almost 100 years, they were, apparently, the most feared sea raiders in the Mediterranean region and a constant challenge to the might and prosperity of Egypt. Like, that's just what it is. And I think that last word, actually, that that is perhaps the most important thing. Prosperity. See, we're talking pirates, right? So pirates naturally went after the places and the people that had money, and they would form all around the classic trade routes. They would go across the world to prey on its shipping and its people. The big draw of this was not sugar or other products, like what would come in later millennia, but rather the people for the purpose of slavery. That, that is the big thing with piracy for the longest time, before... We had a lot of the, like what we associate as the golden age of piracy, which is more focused on goods. The big moneymaker, the big thing that pirates were a part of, Gabby, that was slavery. Because you see, piracy was fueled by the slave trade to such a degree that normally even law-abiding sea traders, such as people like the Phoenicians, would resort to piracy, just like kidnapping citizens from coastal towns and ports to sell them as slaves. Like, the slave trade was very lucrative. I'll I'll give you this as an example. So by the time of the Roman Empire, if you had a, like, let's say you had an adult male, right? He's between the age of 15 and 40. He's in good shape, ready to work as a laborer. That's going to cost you around a thousand, like, sesterces, which is around $3,000 today. And a healthy adult female would be around 800 sesterces or, like, $2,400. While those that were older or younger would be cheaper. Slaves might also be taken in conquest for those who sold themselves to either escape debt or would sell their children for the same reason. They'd what now? Oh, yeah, no, selling your children into slavery was a very common thing. Like, if you, like, like, let's say you had a farm, you had a very bad harvest, and now you, you had eight children and you didn't have a way to properly feed them. Like, you, everything failed. You might sell one or two of your children. Just your least favorites, of course. I'm not even kidding. Like, that is straight up something they would do. Okay, do you actually... Okay, why can I not remember it? Was it the book of Job? No, it wasn't Job. It was, um... Why can I not remember the name of the book? The one with the multicolor cloak. Joseph. Joseph. Yes, remember how his brothers sold him into slavery? Yes, but that's because he was the father's favorite and he had a coat of many colors. Yes, okay. Well, the, the idea of it, this exists at that time. So all across that region, there are slave traders. There are pirates that you would just, you could sell family members to if you had to. You could sell people into slavery. And th- this is before phones or anything like that. Like Once they're sold and they're across, like, you know, a couple miles away, they're gone. How much did you say a adult male would get? Around three thousand dollars, and that's in Rome because you're talking about it as a laborer. It depends where you are. We're going to cover something later on regarding the Ottomans, where in the Arab slave trade overall, it was women that were significantly more valuable because of the sex slave trade. So I could get three thousand dollars for you. You said sell family to, members to Rome. 
Okay. Like, okay, if we're talking modern day, and this is going to get kind of dark here for it here. If you're talking modern day. China, te- right? Yes, you could technically sell me to somewhere in China, probably. I actually was reading about that. So, good luck, pal. You better be nice to me. Like, you wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Don't give me that shit. I'd be fine. <laughs> For three thousand, well, maybe for 30, for three thousand. This is this is the this is the husband wife equivalent of for one corn chip. Maybe thirty thousand. God dang it! So yes, as I said, they would sell their children, but it would be for like for the same reason. Like people were simply in bad positions, or it could be they were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like that's the reality of it. It was super lucrative for pirates because they made 100% of the profit since it cost them nothing to procure the slaves other than the effort of trying to haul either him or her aboard. Like, you had to feed them, of course, but that that's it. You just literally kidnap people in a village and sail away, and what are they going to do? Ch- like, they, they, it's going to be ridiculously hard to chase after you. You're gone. You have them. It did, that's what it is. Okay, this is actually going to sound really, really bad. But when I was a kid growing up, there was it. So they kind of like traffic people off of the islands and like kids. And so there was one instance where there was like an entire container full of children that the police found because their families, I guess, had sold them and they were going to be trafficked off the island. But the cops like raided and they made a bus and it was just like a container full of children. And then there was this other instance where they actually got one of the kids onto a boat and the boat was leaving and he jumped off the boat and swam to shore, but none of the other kids were saved. So that's kind of sad. And this is like when I was a kid. It was like apparently decently common. Oh boy. Yep. It's a thing that is, it's one of the oldest trades in human existence. Like that's just, that's just how it is. See, Pirates who were not members of legitimate trading vessels, they were most often those who found that they could not make a decent living. Otherwise, like, for example, you had the Cilician pirates, for example, were mostly comprised of coastal fishermen in Cilicia, Trachea, which is, like, it's roughly where Cilicia is, like, heading over into the into the Middle East, where the earth was not, con- like, it, it wasn't good for farming. So when these people felt that they were not making a sufficient living from the sea... They turned, which actually Cilicia, it's it's within the Mediterranean. Like, that's that's where it is. But they would turn to piracy either by outfitting their own small boat or by joining the crew that was, you know, already established. See, the typical pirate ship was, it, 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 it was summed up in this kind of small vessel called a, um, like a Lembus, I think I'm saying that right? which was this small, agile craft which could very easily navigate coastal waters where the shipping lanes were. They could intercept and they could board other vessels, and then they would simply disappear into coves and harbors that were otherwise inaccessible to larger ships. Any fisherman worth his salt would have known how to rig and steer a Lembus, or even build one if they had to. It's kind of like, it's one of those small little vessels that you could just, since these are all rowing vessels, that you could just get up very quickly onto someone's ship and take them by surprise. Which, I mean, one need not have been a struggling fisherman to turn to piracy. Like, sea trade and travel could be just enticing because it offered the possibility of any kind of upward mobility, which, if you were a lower-class farmer or a fisherman or, like, just a craftsman, maybe you weren't that good at your craft, who knows? Maybe you're, like, a potter, but all of your pottery is, like, lumpy or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like, let's say it's not in high demand. If... 
you did, if you try to go and become a pirate, a member of the crew of a pirate crew, they would share in the spoils and potentially one day, maybe they could even afford their own ship and their crew, which would at least, it, it would allow them to imagine a life that was more promising and exciting than field work. Hey everyone, it's you here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There was a lot more mobility because there was a lot more danger. Anything could happen. See, piracy was also considered a perfectly acceptable practice during times of war. And that went on, like, that, that's the case for thousands of years, actually. So, this practice during times of war was allowed as long as the action was approved by the state and was, the, the state was associated with the crew. So, you have an example, the Greek orator, uh, the Greek orator Demonthenes, in one of his speeches, he noted how three Athenian ambassadors on their way by ship to Caria, which is a modern day Turkey, on this diplomatic mission in 355 BC, they had the captain turn the ship around to pursue and intercept a trade vessel that was coming out of Egypt. The ambassadors seized the Egyptian cargo, which was a blatant act of piracy, and then they just continued along their mission. Demonthenes was not condemning the piracy since Athens was then at war with Egypt. Instead, he denounced the ambassadors because they kept the loot instead of actually turning it over to the state. As long as one could prove the theft of the cargo was against a hostile country, it wasn't considered piracy, but rather a justifiable act of war. So that was a very common thing. Like... There were nations all over that were famous for doing stuff like this. The nation best known for piracy in the ancient world as a military tactic was also, like, that was the Illyrians of the Balkan Peninsula. See, it was the Illyrians who first constructed the Lembus-style ship in order to use it for piracy, and you had Queen Teuta of the, uh, like, I, I can't even begin to pronounce this word here, I know I'm gonna get it wrong, but the RDI, like, the, the RDI would encourage piracy among, like, its peoples, as long as the victims were of other nationalities. It was like it, this almost kind of proto, not pirate republic, but pirate kingdom, effectively, for how it was set up. And Teuta's pirate acts, I guess you could say, they would routinely interfere with a lot of the, you know, other interests of people, like the Romans. But the funny thing is, Rome only took action after she killed a Roman envoy that she found disrespectful. <laughs> Like, I respect that. I think that is how we should handle disrespect from people. I, I, I'm actually not sure how I should interpret that from you. <laughs> I'm joking. I can just imagine you just got a rude phone call from work for years. Even kill them. Oh, listen. I just cry a lot. Um, you know I handle disrespect by crying. So. <laughs> 
So that's that's how it is. That action of killing the ambassador brought consul Lucius Postimius Albus, and he brought his fleet, or not Albus, Albinus, and he brought his fleet down to, like, to Illyria in order to go after her, like, Tuda. So she was defeated in the First Illyrian War, and according to legend, then immediately killed herself after in 227 BC. So in an effort to kind of control Illyria and its pirates, because the whole thing was just, it was outlaw country, Rome instead supported a client king by the name of Demetrius of Pharos, who, as king, had helped Rome defeat Teuda, but you know what happened? As soon as Rome left, literally as soon as they did, what did he do? I don't know. What did he do? He went right back to pirating. That sounds fair. Like, literally, literally, it's like, oh, man, I'm being bullied. Goes and gets a bigger bully to beat out the bully. And then the bully, that bigger bully starts beating you. <laughs> Which, I mean, in this case, no, Rome was the one that was doing a lot of the heavy lifting and did a lot of the smacking. So they did smacking multiple times. I mean, we're talking the First Illyrian War, the Second Illyrian War. They, like, things did not actually end until after the Third Illyrian War. <laughs> When Illyria was just defeated and finally annexed into Rome itself. They, they just took over everything with it because screw it, we're, we're so tired of dealing with these pirates. We're just not going to do this shit anymore. So after Illyria, the most active pirates came from the ports of Cilicia and Crete and other like of those Greek islands that were spread out throughout the Mediterranean. So legend claims that King Minos of Crete was actually the first ruler to form a fleet to combat piracy during the Minoan period, which was around 2000 to 1500 BC. And if that's the case, it's kind of ironic because his descendants would go way far away from that policy since Crete and the other islands, you know, I mean, we're talking about a bunch of islands in the Mediterranean, like that's the perfect staging ground for pirates. Crete was a ridiculously popular haven for all these pirates by the 3rd century BC. You had this Cretan city called uh, Hierophytnia, which is uh, modern-day Irapetra, which was controlled by pirates who regularly would just prowl the different coasts and islands of the Aegean and the Mediterranean going all around just raiding people for slaves. Like, literally, this is just what people would be doing all over. And one of their main targets was the island of Rhodes, whose government just really got tired of it all because i mean naturally gabby if you're going to be getting hit again and again and again and again and again by all these raids you're going to get tired of it too and you're going to want it to end <laughs> so what they did on roads is they built up their own kind of anti-piracy fleet that was merchant vessels so they armed all of their merchant vessels and they built warships to patrol all through their five lucrative ports so their anti-pirate initiative worked so well that piracy in the Aegean almost became non-existent, and Rhodes actually flourished as a wealthy trade city. By 200 BC, Rhodes had curtailed piracy to such an extent that Hypernia actually became an ally of them instead. They renounced piracy, embraced trade, and started hunting pirate ships themselves. Everything seems great, right? Yes. Yes, and then guess what? The Romans show up. Which is actually very funny because of how it show if how it happens, but the, Rome does this stuff to protect their own interests economically, which kind of makes sense. 
But in 167 BC, the island of Delos was under Roman control, and Rome, which was at odds with Rhodes, they tried to undercut their monopoly on trade in the region by making Delos a duty-free port. Basically, if you brought your trade goods there, you wouldn't pay taxes, which is ridiculously good for traders, naturally. So Rhodes, which was able to pay for its warships and armed vessels and patrols through harbor taxes on ships and other, like the duty on cargo, once Delos became duty-free, more and more of their traders began going there, and Rhodes could no longer afford to keep up its anti-piracy control because they, they literally didn't have the money. So naturally, when that happens, piracy in the Aegean and the Mediterranean Sea once again flourishes. Even more so once Roman traders turned to Delos into one of the most infamous slave markets in the region. Like pirate ships from Melos, Aegina, Crete, Cilicia, they came to Delos with just slaves from everywhere to sell. And among those selling slaves were the Cilician pirates, the best known, like, the, they were the best known and most notorious of their time, which I mean, okay, not all Cilician pirates were from Cilicia, as, like, the region's rocky southern coast had a bunch of different inlets, which made it very attractive to a lot of small pirate ships, or really any nation that were seeking early access to harbors that they could just simply disappear into, to, you know, like, resupply or hide or anything like that. The Sicilian, or not Sicilian, the Cilician, Sicily is a completely different thing. The Cilician pirates grew in power as the Seleucids which controlled a lot of the coast of Cilicia, they began to wane steadily after 110 BC. So Rome had first become involved in Cilicia in 190 BC when they took the region from the Seleucids, but they allowed client kings to continue their rule and basically ignore the problem of piracy as it did not affect Roman interests. By 103 BC, the problem had grown so serious that Rome sent Marcus Antinus, which is like the grandfather of Mark Antony, who conquered the smooth Cilicia between 78 and 74 BC, and then sent consul Publius Servilius Vatia, who conquered rough Cilicia, so really the mountainous regions. But neither did anything to curtail piracy, really. By 67 BC, Pompey the Great was in the region campaigning, like he was campaigning against Mithridates in uh, of the Mithridatic Wars, and he found that Mithridates was actually employing the Cilician pirates to interfere with the Roman war effort, which is, you know, natural. You just pay the pirates to do some raiding, and they, A, get a bunch of loot, and B, they get paid to do so in the first place. So it, it was a really lucrative endeavor for them, but... On that note, I wanted to bring this up. This It's this fun little tale that I have covered. I've done the video. Gabby, you know this one very well. But I've mentioned the name Silesian, 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 Silesian again and again and again. This is the their most famous tidbit. So in 75 BC, there was this band of Silesian pirates that were in the Aegean Sea. And they captured this 24-year-old nobleman by the name of Julius Caesar. Yeah, and I'm yeah, we're talking that Julius Caesar. See, he had been on his way to study like oratory and law in Rhodes, and as the story is related in Plutarch's Parallel Lies, the capture was um I mean, it was inconvenient for him, but it was more so something really bad for the pirates in the end. Because see, from the start, Caesar just 
he didn't want to act like a captive. When the pirates told him that they had set his ransom to the sum of 20 talents of silver, which is around $600,000 today, he laughed at them and then told them that that wasn't enough, that they had no idea who they had captured, and demanded that they raise it to 50 talents, or $1.5 million, which would be a more appropriate amount for someone of his status. Did they, they, they raise it? Yeah, they raised it. Like, they laughed and they did it. Like, the, the crazy thing was what he then did is he sent out his entourage. They released them to go to his family, collect the ransom, and that would be the end of that. I mean, the pirates were dumbfounded, but they're like, okay, well, I guess this is what it is. Caesar then refused to act like a captive. He made himself at home. He started bossing the pirates around. He would shush them when he wanted to sleep. He made them listen to his speeches and poems that he was composing. Like, because, you know, he had a lot of downtime while he was while he had been captured. And just that that's just what he did. He would play with their games. He would participate in their exercises. He always addressed them like he were they were servants or soldiers that were beneath him. And from time to time, he would tell them, like, eh, hey guys, yeah, so um I am definitely having you guys crucified after all this. And they took it as a joke. You know, thought like, yeah, what is this guy going to do? It's not going to do anything. And so it wasn't a joke. After 38 days, the ransom was delivered and Caesar went free. He then managed to raise a naval military force in Miletus, despite holding no public or military office, and then set out in pursuit of the pirates. He found them camped at the island where he had been killed. They never even left the island. Like, like, look at this. They capture this guy. He tells them, like, yeah, guys, uh, I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to kill all of you. Just, I'm going to have you all crucified. And they don't leave. Like, they don't think that he's going to report it to the authorities and that something is going to happen. Obviously, this guy who's able to deliver all the silver has some kind of means of power, right? And they just don't. They just don't do anything. So when the governor of Asia seemed to you know, go back and forth on, like, whether or not to really punish him. Caesar just went to the prison that they were being held at and just had them all crucified afterwards, like, after they were all captured. Like, the man took no... I hate to break this to you, but if I were to ever be kidnapped, I, too, would make them raise a ransom, and you're poor as hell, so good luck. Wait, will I die? (gasps) You'd let me die. If you raised the ransom... Yeah? I would, I, I would let, I would let you. <gasps> you can't say that. No, no, I'm no. The love of if your you, life. if you purposely made things more difficult, that that's like, that's like if I, you asked me to get you food, I got you food, and then you like went, no, no, you were supposed to crawl on your knees to get there and then go back, so it would be more difficult. Yeah, exactly. I'd say no, screw that. I'm now gonna throw your food on the floor. <gasps> you that can't makes do no that. sense. <laughs> Okay, but you're supposed to love me unconditionally, so you'd pay a ridiculous amount of money to get me back if I were being held captive. I would love you, but I would love you like a poet pining after the woman that he can't have because she's far away. That is so rude. You're the one that raised your ransom in this context. Because I'm worth it. What is the initial ransom and what is it being raised to? It's like a million dollars and it'll be raised f- to- No, no. Or how- Gabby- <laughs> I'm not Ga- worth a million dollars. No, Gabby, I could take out a second mortgage on this house. It wouldn't even come close. Well, make more money. What do you mean make- 
You heard it here, folks, for the hypothetical situation of whether or not I have to somehow at some point in the future pay a ransom for my wife. Uh, please donate to my Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this was some long spiel for it, but it wasn't. It was just like I saw an opportunity and I had to take it. Okay, but you 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 would you would pay it, right? Listen, I'm a serious, love of your life. Li- listen, you would pay it, right? Listen, listen. If you raised the ransom yourself, no. Okay, finish the episode. We're gonna have a talk. <laughs> oh no, you're not. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So the funny thing is, though, all this happens after all the slavery and everything was cracked down upon. The issue was Rome still needed slaves. Like there were pirates that were still, you know, pirates were the central agents of the slave trade. Like Pompey's own son, like Pompey was the guy who crushed the pirates, but his own son became a pirate and commanded a pirate fleet. Like his victory was only a temporary stopgap, which helped with the Mithridatic Wars, but it did not end piracy in the Mediterranean. In 31 BC, Roman general Octavian would defeat the forces of Mark Antony and Cleopatra at at Actium to become Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor. The empire, not just the Republic, the empire now would need more slaves than the Republic ever had. And so the Cilician pirates and others, they were back in business. See, the Cilician side of Day. That was an administrative center for the slave trade in the Mediterranean, and it became one of the wealthiest because of it. Roman slave traders would just lavish gifts and money on the city, which went to the construction of monumental gates, the temples of Apollo, the Nepheum, baths, a massive theater which would seat over 15,000 people. Like, all the ruins of those structures are still there. Like, you can still see them to this day in Sidae. I mean, a lot of it is gone, but the ruins are there. But the fact that they were built with you know, not even slave labor. It was built with, you know, the funds from slave trade is not exactly something that people uh, tend to look at very often. Silesian pirates were still plying their trade in the same way that they had for, like, you know, for centuries when you had the writers that were in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd century AD who would report on all these different groups that would masquerade as legitimate merchants. So here's a tactic. Here's what they would do. They would lure unsuspecting citizens towards their ships where they would act like, you know, merchants. They would announce that they had these quality goods for sale and they would wait until they had a large number of people that had either boarded the ship or would gather near it. And then they would very quickly haul as many of them aboard as they could, tie them up and sail away. Like, okay, Gabby, do you remember when we rewatched Avatar? Yes. Remember that pirate ship that was decked out as a merchant vessel? Wait, like, there were pirate with, ships in Avatar? You know, remember what the Qatar went in and got the water scroll, water scroll from that she stole? Wait. Did in the we... beginning, like in the first season? Oh, the last airbender. Yeah. Right, yeah, sorry. I was thinking about the blue people. That movie is... What? <laughs> I'm 
sorry. Okay. Well, I mean, admittedly, the next one is going to be coming out here pretty soon, which actually I'm excited about. It's been too long. But yes, we're talking Avatar The Last Airbender. They had a uh, a store inside the boat, basically, where they sold all these goods that they had stolen from around the world. And so when they, you know, this is one of those things that if it was that same kind of setup, imagine that when people came in to view their store, they just raised the anchor and sailed away. You know, taking the people with them so that they could actually sell them as slaves and that kind of thing. Now, unlike earlier... Rome didn't do anything to stop that practice. They didn't really do anything to try and curtail this kind of piracy in any way because now they were benefiting from it. The Silesian pirates were, in effect, working for the Roman Empire because they were now providing the slaves that Rome needed. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, though, the Eastern Byzantine Empire retained control of the Mediterranean and the slave trade until the rise of Islam in the early 7th century. You see... Islam forbade the enslavement of Muslims by Muslims, and yet the Arabs relied on slave labor just as much as the Byzantines did, because in the early stages of the spread of Islam, non-Muslims who were not killed or converted were just simply sold into slavery, both as a monetary effort and as a punishment. So as Islam spread across North Africa and into the Mediterranean, the Arab fleets would attack coastal towns, they would sack and burn them, leaving with a quantity of their citizens just destined for the slave markets. The city of Side would just fall to the Muslim raiders at some point in the 7th century, and by 700, they had taken Silesia away from the Byzantines. The slave trade, that was the strongest incentive for piracy. Like, you had Muslim slave ships that would prowl the Mediterranean as the Silesians had before them. Crete was under Muslim control, and the emirate of Crete since the 820s was again a safe haven for pirates who justified it because their actions were for Islamic Jihad. Like, it was a holy war that they were waging. Which, it was in part the activities of these pirates out of Crete that led to its conquest by the Byzantine Emperor Nicephorus II, who in 961, prior to his reclamation of Silesia, also again associated with piracy in 965. The slave trade would, over time though, decline in the Byzantine Empire after the 7th century CE, as it came to be viewed as, well, you know, morally wrong, but slaves were still kept by the Byzantines and were supplied by Arab traders and pirates. Like, you know, it's just something that they benefit from. Now, they don't want to do it at that point, but they're going to. The funny thing is, European Christian nations also actively engaged in piracy in the slave trade. They Okay, in spite of the Byzantine combination of both, in 1192, the Byzantine Emperor Isaac II Angelos complained to the state of Genoa that their pirates were robbing Byzantine ships of substantial goods. So Angelos demanded that the Genoese reimburse the Byzantine merchants for their loss, or he would hold the Genoese citizens who were living in his capital of Constantinople responsible and force them to pay a kind of tax to pay for it. Angelo's threats didn't actually do anything for Genoa because Genoa, it's, it's a whole bunch of merchants. They didn't care. They were just in it for the money and the riches. <laughs> so they just continued to act as pirates in the region. Piracy would continue all the way through the Mediterranean after the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 453 and the rise of the Ottoman Empire. And this is where a lot of the piracy at that region, it primarily became centered around Muslims and the Ottomans and the Barbary pirates. 
because there were all different kinds of Muslim groups that were raiding Christian territory and enslaving them in the Far East. The Berber pirates of North Africa were the primary agents in this case, and they would expand their sphere of operations under the privateer Kemal Reis, who he is the guy that established the Barbary pirates as a kind of, you know, it's kind of menace to Europe. Reese was so effective in taking European Christian ships and crews for slaves that the Ottoman Empire actually made him an admiral of their forces. Like, this was a national weapon that was to be used. Like, all different kinds of groups were doing at this point. From the 16th to the 18th century, the Spanish Empire and the Ottoman Empire essentially fought a massive proxy war in the Mediterranean through piracy. Like, they would hire all these crews, they would be combating each other with galleys, you had all... It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. And the funniest thing, and I'm going to leave this last little tidbit, this is the, this is the final little bit that I'm going to give. The Berber or Barbary coast, like these pirates, they raided all the way up to like Ireland and Iceland. It's ridiculous. And the funny thing is, when you had a lot of these privateers, which we can get into privateers and the whole thing, because I'm sure we're going to, at some point, we're going to do a uh, podcast on the golden age of piracy. You remember what a privateer was, right, Gabby? Because, I mean, we're talking the Caribbean at that point. A big ship? No, a, um, a privateer is a state-sponsored pirate. Oh. So it's essentially, imagine you're a citizen of England, and the crown gives you a letter of mark. They give you a deed that basically says, like, hey, you're allowed to raid Spanish ships. Go be a pirate. You're not allowed to raid English ships or anything like that, but we're giving you permission and some support to raid enemies of the crown. So they would enlist private people that were outside of the military to do this, kind of like pirates as mercenaries sort of thing, but more like giving them free reign to do what they want. So these privateers, when they lost their ability to be privateers anymore because there was no war, a number of them literally just went down south, converted to Islam, and then became Berber pirates. Because... They weren't going to give up the pirate life. It was too rich. It literally made too much money. So yeah, they just went down and converted to Islam. Like some of the most famous ones. Like I think um, I think the one that launched this huge rage on Ireland was this Dutch guy that converted to uh, to Islam and did that. It's just, it just is what it is. But anyway, on that note, I think that that is where we're going to leave things here for today. There are so many more different stories about pirates and all different kinds of things that we could do, but I think I have some upcoming stuff for some actual podcast sponsors that should be in the works fairly soon. So I ask that you all look forward to that because I think we're going to have a couple of really fun ones that are going to be themed based around this. So I look, I, I'm really excited about that. Thank you to everyone who has been listening to this podcast, and I do hope you all have a good rest of your day. Please make sure to uh, join Patreon if you want to get additional episodes. It only costs a dollar a month. Check out our website. Make sure to submit your uh, family stories or just history stories of relatives or people that you know or that your family knew that you'd like to share. And leave us a review because reviews help podcasts grow. And I wish you all a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. And before we go, I'm going to be doing the story of the week here at the end bye guys bye well everyone today's listener story comes from thomas atilo thomas thank you very much for sending in your submission and thank you very much for listening to the podcast 
It goes, hello guys, greetings from Argentina. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I have a story that I find quite interesting, though I don't know how accurate it is, given that it's a story that my grandmother would tell me, and she always told his grandfather told her this story, so keep in mind that it may not be 100% accurate. Which is fine. Family stories are something that are passed down. Maybe there are some details that are missing, but in the end, it's still a story of your family. So the story begins with my grandmother's grandfather, not sure how many greats I need to add to that, and he was born in the northern part of Italy in a town near Milan, around 1880 or 1890. And when he was about 18, or maybe 19 years old, he escaped Italy and bought a Winchester rifle and went to fight in the Second Boer War. He fought for less than a year before the war ended, then he went back to Italy where he found out that all of his family had actually escaped to Paraguay because they were accused of being Freemasons. After a few years with the European political climate becoming more and more obvious, he decides to escape to Paraguay with his newly wedded wife. They lived there a few years near the Argentine border near the Panana River, where he lived hunting with the same Winchester rifle. After four children in an incident where one of them was almost killed by a snake, they decided to go to Buenos Aires where they lived until their death in the 1940s. Nowadays, that same Winchester rifle is a decorative piece in my room, and every time I look at it, I can't help but wonder all the things that this rifle saw through its life. P.S. This has nothing to do with my great-great-grandfather, but sadly his sons decided to go and fight for Italy during World War II, and out of the three boys, only two went, my great-grandfather and two older brothers. They were pilots stationed in Italian Libya, and one of them was shot down and killed during the siege of Tobruk, and for years, my great-grandfather, whom I met when I was very little, had a dog that he called Tobruk. It wasn't until recently that I realized what it meant, but before you feel any kind of pity or sorry for him, I was later told that he helped a lot of Italians get fake Argentine passports after the war, and you can imagine that they were not really politically good people. I hope that you find my family story interesting, love the podcast, and you two keep it up, and I hope it all works out. Kind regards, Thomas. Thomas, thank you very much for that submission, and here's what I have to say at the end of all this. If you trace us back far enough from all of our family, ancestors, relatives, just people that we know, you're not exactly going to find all great things or what we deem nowadays to be great. History is one of those things that is not black and white. People do things for a variety of different reasons, and Italy in World War II was one of those forces that was kind of cajoled into what it did. Of course, Mussolini had his own ambitions, and there's any number of analyses that could be made, but one has to understand that the actual population in these countries that do things are, generally speaking, quite divided. I'll give you this as an example for anyone who maybe feels ashamed of perhaps some German heritage of theirs back in World War II. The thing about the Germans is that the overwhelming majority were not a member of the Nazi party. That's just it. And many that were joined specifically in order to be able to advance within their industrial or political life. Didn't mean that they adhered to the party's principles, but that they had to work within the system that they already had. That's just how it is sometimes. People are forced to do many things that they would much rather not do. Others go along with it very willingly. You never really know, and there's always more complexity to these things than we imagine. But Thomas, I appreciate you submitting your submission. And I do hope to anyone listening that you have another good one to let us know for next time. Goodbye, guys. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.